You're tuning in to episode 148 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. I'm here once again with Dr. Alan Strange, professor of apologetics and church history. Dr. Strange, thank you for, for joining me for one final episode here in the early church. Good to be with you and your listeners always. Dr. Strange is going to be elaborating on the persons of Arius and Athanasius, two men who were involved in a pivotal moment in church history, that being the Council of Nicaea, a council that uh, was deciding the, on the person of Jesus Christ. Dr. Strange, can you uh, explain for us what role Athanasius played in opposing Arius? What was Arius's view on this contra Athanasius and other Orthodox uh, theologians at the time. Well, this is um, a fascinating and very important part of ancient church history. Um, Arius is, I guess we could say, and this may be a new word for our listeners as well, is probably the primary heresiarch of the uh, church of old. Uh, you're all familiar with the word heresy and heretic, but a heresiarch is a fountainhead of heresy. And so Arius was that, but he wasn't seeking to be. Arius, whose dates are 250 to 336, and Jared was already wondering if he was poisoned or judged of God, but uh, we'll leave that one on the side for now, is probably born in Libya, and he's a pupil of Lucian of Antioch. He's ordained as a deacon by the Bishop of Alexandria, and under the bishop's successor, uh, he's ordained at 312 or so as a priest. He's put in charge of the one of the leading uh, churches of the city. And he earns, Arius, earns a reputation as a preacher who is very revered for his asceticism. Now, we, we might think, given what I just said, but wait a minute, wasn't Arius um, a bad guy? Wasn't he a heresiarch? Well, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, it isn't the case that those who might teach false doctrine walk around with signs on them or lights flashing, say, Dr. Who-like, saying, warning, warning. They don't do that. They can be wonderful people. Mm -hmm. They can be warm people. Uh, the question is, are they teaching what scriptures teach or not? And so Arius wasn't a fellow about whom there was thought to be terrible moral failings on his part. That wasn't his problem. What happens is Arius comes forward as a champion of subordinationist teaching about the person of Christ. Now, you remember we've talked about Justin Martyr and his Logos doctrine and Origen and his Logos doctrine. And Origen had kept in his Logos doctrine a kind of subordinationism, and Alexander picks that up. But Alexander wants to make sure that Christ is seen as distinct from the Father. Because I mentioned last time that Tertullian opposed a fellow in 2.13 called Praxius. And what this guy taught, and another fellow called Sibelius, not the composer, but a fellow in the ancient church called Sibelius, 
what they taught was that God is one, and sometimes God appears as the Father, and then he appears as the Son, and then he appears as the Spirit. But these are not three distinct persons in the Godhead. God is just one. Sometimes you could say he puts the mask of the Father on, and other times the mask of the Son, and other times the mask of the Spirit. Arius really opposed this teaching, and he was right to do so. It's wrong. He looked at Tertullian and others and said, this is really wrong. I oppose this. And he looked at Origen and said, Origen taught that Jesus was subordinate to the Father. So Jesus can't just be a mask that God wears. Jesus has to be a distinct person. So what you want to give Arius is these two things. You want to give him that he opposed modalism. He opposed this view that that God just wore these masks, and he wanted Jesus to have a distinct character. But here's where he went with this. Here's where he took it. He said the Son of God was not eternal, but was created by the Father. He was the highest created being, and he was the instrument for the creation of the world. He said that Christ is not God by nature, but a changeable creature, that his dignity as Son of God was bestowed on him by his Father on account of his foreseen abiding righteousness. And he appears to have said, because the Nicene Creed quotes this, there was a time, there was when he was not. And so he teaches that Jesus is not eternal. And so here is his error, and Athanasius was the rock who stood against Arius and really against anybody who taught this. You may know that, that, that Athanasius was said to be contramundum, against the world, and his being against the world was because he was for Christ and he was for teaching this wonderful doctrine, this very rich doctrine that the Father and the Son are of the same substance. The Father and the Son are of the same substance. Also, let me just plug in to what I was talking about last time. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But we talked about what was hinted at in Justin Martyr, but Irenaeus particularly developed in his doctrine of his doctrine of uh, republic, not republication, uh, <laughs> his doctrine of recapitulation, I mean to say. It's made more explicit in Athanasius. And in Athanasius' great work on the Incarnation, he argues that the reason and necessity for the Incarnation is that God himself saw the reasonable race of men wasting out of existence and death reigning over all in corruption after Adam's fall. And he saw that the corruption, I'm quoting from his work, held us all the closer because it was the penalty for the transgression. He saw, too, how unthinkable it would be for the law to be repealed before it was fulfilled. And so it became the work of Christ to fulfill the law. Adam broke it, but Christ didn't just pay the penalty for Adam breaking it. Christ fulfilled it. And I love the way he puts it. it he saw how unthinkable it would be for the law to be repealed, that is, to be just broken and set aside in some fashion before it was fulfilled. And so Adam, uh, the, the last Adam, the second Adam, Christ, fulfilled that law for us. But what he becomes particularly known for 
in his work on the incarnation, which I would recommend anyone to read. I've recommended or I mentioned a bunch of things in this series, but this is a particularly apt work. Uh, And in this work, he really gets at his differences with Arius and what it's all about. And he says this when he's talking about God at one point. uh, This is in, I couldn't give you a page number because you all, you have different editions, but this is in section 17. He's writing about Jesus here. uh, And he says, his body was not for him a limitation, but an instrument so that he was both in it and in all things, and outside all things, resting in the Father alone. At one and the same time, this is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life, and as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe, and as son, he was in constant union with the Father. And the book is full of this sort of insight and understanding of the full deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, which Arius had denied. So how did the Arian crisis get solved then? What happened after Council of Nicaea? Oh, my, 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 my. Well, the Council of Nicaea came together in 325, and we're going to have some episodes where we talk more about it in detail. But that council came together and basically affirmed that the Father and the Son were of the same substance. So affirmed the sort of position that Athanasius defends and articulates all the rest of his life, you might think it's over then. But as I often say in my history lecture, it's after the great council of Nicaea and before the council, the next council, the council of Constantinople in 381. It's in those years of the fourth century between those two councils, 325 and 381, that the church faces its greatest peril. And here's why. Here's why the church faces its greatest peril. It's because when Nicaea affirms that the Father and the Son are of the same substance, there's the remaining problem of not clearly and properly doing what ultimately the church is going to want to do to maintain that God's unity, which is really what Nicaea maintains, and his triune nature, that God is three persons. And so many people come away from from Nicaea, and you have parties with strange names like the Animoeans and the Homoeans. We won't talk about what they believed. But the Semi-Arians, this was the biggest party, they accepted a formula of, of homoousios, that the Father and the Son were of like substance, because they felt that this would allow for the similarity, the oneness to be affirmed, but the distinction between the first two persons to be made. And people continued to struggle with that, and the church went back and forth on this. And there was a a council, in fact, in 359, that sort of adopted a kind of not even a semi-Arian, a lesser formula. And Jerome said, the whole world groaned and marveled to find itself Arian. And so people were very concerned. That was There was a lot of confusion. What ultimately happens is Julian, who is called Julian the Apostate, becomes the emperor in 361. And you've had Christian emperors since uh, Constantine. And now you have a pagan emperor, and 
uh, it's not even a matter of being an Aryan emperor. You'd had Aryans too, but Aryans are claiming to be Christians. This is a flat-out pagan. And he says, I'm going to bring back all of the all of the Aryans and semi-Aryans that have been sent into exile by the Orthodox people. I'm going to bring them all back, and they're going to kind of eat each other up like the gingham dog and the calico cat. They're going to just destroy each other. And what happened was that the semi-Aryans began to work with the Orthodox, and Athanasius and his friends, the Cappadocian fathers, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus, they worked together to formulate something that would account for the oneness and the threeness. And they came up with this formula, mia usia, one substance or essence, trace hypostases, three persons. Mm. And many people, when they heard that, they said, that's it. That's what we're looking for. And so Arianism, it didn't die just right at that point. But many people who had been semi-Arians or had been flirting with some form of Arianism abandoned it because they felt like that now they had arrived at a formula that decisively rejected modalism because people didn't want modalism. They knew that Jesus was a distinct person. And they wanted to maintain that, and rightly so. But they wanted to maintain also that each of the persons of the blessed, holy, undivided Trinity were fully God and persons in their own right. And Basil of Caesarea, mentioning him, he wrote a great work called On the Holy Spirit, which that I would still recommend to you, in which he sets this forth over against those who oppose this doctrine. And so that's a way... Uh, ultimately, that's a that's a very short version of of a very tumultuous century in which a lot of the yeah. church had there been a an ecumenical council called in 350, say in the middle of it. You did have that one in uh, around those times, that time in in 359. But had there been a council called, uh, many would not have been able to s- express and reaffirm everything at Nicaea because they felt that it fell short. Uh, on the persons, sure, but they were able to work it out. The Julian, the apostate, who sought to destroy the church, God used him in his hatred of the church to bring about a better day. And I hope our listeners can learn that lesson from history. You might look at the rulers of the world in different parts of the world and say they just want to destroy the church. Well, the church belongs to Jesus, and our dear Lord to defend is with us to the end. Though there be those that hate us and false sons in her pale, she ever shall prevail because Jesus is her Lord. Wow, you know, we sometimes take for granted, you know, our where our Christology is today, but we really do stand on the shoulders of giants in the early church who really had to fight hard for good, proper Orthodox theology when it comes to the person of Jesus and the Trinity. I'm very thankful for the work of the men that the, our Lord used so many years ago. Well, next time, we're going to be looking at preaching, and Dr. Beach will be joining us addressing the question, is the act of preaching the Word of God? Tune in next time to hear his answer to that. 
For more episodes, you can find us online at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.